Welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to go from startup to scale up and beyond. How to significantly grow your business, create freedom, build wealth, and live life on your terms. Featuring some very special guests and experts to give you advice and direction on your journey. And now, introducing your host, entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi, everyone. It is Nick here, and welcome to today's show. So, we all have failures and challenges, but what if I told you that today's guest not only lost his family company, a 150-year-old family company, but also lost a staggering figure of $2.25 billion Australian dollars to privatization. Now, what does that really mean? Well, that basically means that Warwick Fairfax, today's guest, um, tried very, very hard, diligently, 34 years or so ago to try and effectively save his family's company, the Fairfax Media Group in Australia, but was not successful. And that then created a whole heap of different levels of chaos and turmoil in his life because, you know, how do you go back from being the heir apparent to something so big and significant and, you know, holding, if you like, inheritance, other siblings, other people in his family, you know, expectations. How do you go back from that type of of failure, right? How do you do it? So what we're going to get into today is exactly that. How did Warwick recover, build himself back up, build a life of purpose and significance after what was a very public and very, very painful experience for himself um, a number of years back? Lots to learn from this. You know, again, sometimes we see people who have success, they might be, you know, as, as Warwick was, born into families where they have lots of things that they have given to them or opportunities, but it's not always as it seems. And Warwick talks about that in terms of crucible leadership, or more importantly, crucible moments that emerge in life. And it's not exactly the fact that these things happen because they happen to all of us in different points, but it's what you do about them that makes the biggest difference. So that's today's episode. Um, a fellow Australian, even though Warwick's lived in America for a number of years and I've lived in the UK, I apologize up front for uh, the connection of our accents. What always happens when you start to speak to another Australian uh, is that we both start to go back to our mother tongue, <laughs> so to speak. So enjoy that. Enjoy that rant. But it's a great episode. I learned a lot from it and it was an absolute pleasure having Warwick on the show. So without further ado, welcome to Scale Up Your Business, Warwick Fairfax. Hi, everyone. It is Nick Bradley. Welcome back to the show. This week, we have a real treat. We are going to talk not just about business growth. We're going to talk about some of the trials and tribulations that come from that and the different things that you do after you've had both successes and challenges in business. So I'm absolutely delighted to have with me someone. Sort of, I'm going to say, are you from originally from Australia, Warwick? <laughs> <laughs> I am, believe it or not. Uh, yes, from Sydney. Good. Because uh, I can hear so, the accent. Yes. 
So yeah, I mean, I've I've lived in the U.S. since about nineteen ninety, but I still think there's some Australian in there. Put it this way: nobody from America would think I was American. That is for sure. Well, I can hear (laughs) it. So so Warwick Fairfax is my guest today. Um, He is the founder of Crucible Leadership. And I suppose the big story, not that I necessarily want to kind of go into this, because I'm sure you're doing so many amazing things outside of this, but <laughs> you were 26 when you took over one of the, I'm going to call it one of the empires in, in businesses in Australia, um, the Fairfax empire. And uh, you had to go through a very, very challenging time where there was a takeover of that multi-generational business. I think, was it five or six generations? Long? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Five generations. Indeed. So we're going to get into this today. We're going to get into <laughs> kind of what happened, but also kind of yeah. learn from it and all the different principles that have come from it. So welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much, Nick, for having me. And uh, yeah, it's great to be with the fellow Aussie. And um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's funny. Uh, as you would know, I, I grew up a bit differently than your average Australian. I grew up in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, which for anybody from at least Sydney would know is a very expensive part of Sydney. And uh, yeah, it was just a little different English Australian. Like I never heard my parents say, you know, g'day mate in their whole lives. So if I were ever to say that, I think it's a wonderful expression. It wouldn't be very authentic. I just grew up like a blue blood, Uh, aristocratic Australian kind of thing. And that's a good expression. It's just I don't know. It's not not my world. It's so so weird. I can hear uh, the accent, anyway. though, Warwick. I can hear. So, <laughs> Thank like, it's you. funny because I'm probably attuned <laughs> to the Australian piece of it. But um, I mean, just to go into that, the upbringing. Sure. That, so, were your parents born in Australia, or did they come from England? Yeah. Well, uh, no. I mean, my uh, my family on my dad's side have been in Australia since like the 1830s. So a long time. Yeah. My mom, uh, she was born in Poland. Her parents were Jewish, but not very religious, but, you know, uh, she came out when she was three. So yeah, my parents grew up in Australia, but yeah, in answer to your question. So uh, at least certainly for us or UK listeners or anywhere else, um, uh, I grew up in this 150 year old family media business. It had been in my family for five generations started by, uh, you know, one of the uh, original entrepreneurs, uh, John Fairfax, uh, he he is a good example of pivoting from business failure. So he started out with a small paper in uh, Warwickshire, England, and Lamington, again, for UK listeners. Um, and he wrote an article about a local uh, lawyer who said he was corrupt. The lawyer sued him. The judge found in John Fairfax's favor saying, your story was accurate. But back then, everybody had to pay their own court costs. So he was vindicated, but bankrupted. Um, so at that point, he said, forget this. I'm leaving England, going to Australia. And he bought into uh, the Sydney Morning Herald, ended up uh, you know, soon after buying the whole paper. So from there, over the generations, it grew into a massive media company, newspapers, magazines, newsprint mills radio, TV, it had the um, the U.S. equivalent of the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, the you know quality opinion leaders of the country, so hugely influential. So um, my whole life, it's a bit like, again, UK listeners would get this, or Australia, it's a bit like growing up in the royal family. So for me, not to go into it, it's a bit like saying to Prince William, uh, you ever think you don't want to do this kind of thing? You're you're the heir after Charles, and you know what would his dad or grandmother say? Like, well, Harry, Harry's just walked yeah. away from it. In well, right, right, it. exactly, and that's not being easy. <laughs> you know? no, but let's go into that sort of what that was like. So, because you know, you're born into this 
into this amazing, you know, business right. empire, let's call it that. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I take it, you are effectively educated and groomed that there is no other oh, option yeah. for you to no, what you no, are taking I, to this company. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, the idea that I had another choice, I mean, the whole, like in the US military, you know, they talk about duty on a country and while that's not my background, I, I just, how could I not do that? It felt like it was, you know, I would be abandoning all my, my duty to the country. I mean, it was a sort of a sacred cause, which my family took seriously to have quality journalism. So no, it felt like there was no choice. And so, as I sometimes say, I made the mistake of being the good son, as in I worked hard, I got good grades at school, I didn't do dumb stuff, you know, I was all focused. So that just raised the expectations. So if I'd driven fast cars and I don't know, done dumb, dumb stuff like drugs or whatever, which is never a good thing, it would have lowered expectations. But no, I went the other direction. So I did my undergrad at Oxford, like my dad and some other ancestors worked on Wall Street, got my MBA at Harvard Business School all to fulfill a role. I was very committed to doing that. So yeah, I, I did everything I could, I suppose, unwittingly to raise expectations uh, on what me. Was so, it, yes. um, at what point in time were you aware of this? Like, you know, at what age, you know, because there's a point where obviously there's a, you, you know, you know, you're going into this, you know, it's your right. obligation. Was it quite young? Were you, were you like, you know, were you like 11 or 10 or something? Yeah, we felt like birth, but uh, right. yeah, okay. it's earliest memory because, um yeah, I mean, it, on my, without boring people with the details on my dad's side, for a variety of reasons, you know, he he had a significant shareholding and had an older half brother that didn't have kids. So it was very clear from early on, I was the heir apparent, at least from my dad's perspective. So, yeah, and then probably the expectations got heightened when in 1976, some other family members removed my dad as chairman of the company. It was 11 years beforehand. So they may have had their reasons, but me, age 15, who loved his dad, it's like, how could they do this? So at that point, then it was really game on because my dad was no longer in power, so to speak. And so at that point, it was like, okay, you're next, you know? And so, uh, yeah, so from age 15, the expectations, another pivot point, if you will, it really ramped up then. Uh, how does when, it work then? That So again, at 15, you're not taking over the company, right? Get that. No. So was, there, was, was there a person in waiting, like a chair in waiting or something ready for well, you? Well, what happened is my older half-brother was was chairman um, after my dad. And so, um, yeah, I mean, basically what really triggered things is in my last year at Harvard Business School, my dad died in early 87. He was in his 80s. I was from the third marriage. And both my parents, um, you know, had issues with how the company was being managed and whether it was run along the ideals of the founder, certainly they had management questions. And so once he died, being young, naive, uh, idealistic, and a tad foolish, I felt like something needed to be done, which whether it did, uh, obviously folks in Australia were certainly in the media would question that. And I think that's valid to question whether it was really as dire as my young crusading self thought. But you know, you when you're young, out of Harvard, though, Warwick, didn't you? So you, uh, well, yeah, I do wonder, like, was was I listening? But um, <laughs> another story. But yeah, that was basically why it wasn't about power and money. And money has never been a motivator for me. I'm not against it. It's just not, not in of itself doesn't motivate yeah. me. Uh, but but that sort of for whatever reason just prompted me. Um, and there was also um, 
some uh, the, the market felt the company was in play because 50% of the company was publicly held. So the stock price rocketed up. So for all those reasons, I ended up launching this $2.25 billion takeover in late August 87. And um, yeah, I mean, it it succeeded in the fact in, in that we got control, but it was really a disaster. I mean, some of this is going to be amusing to your entrepreneurial listeners, which is Manny. No, <laughs> but be... this is the point of having you on here, Warwick. And I just want to draw a line under this for a second. <laughs> Please. Let, let's, Please. You know, this gets into it. So, so effectively speaking, you know, the way this, this is a losing a company worth $2.25 billion. Right. This is what we're about to go into. Now, I don't want, I'm not yeah. saying that to make you feel uncomfortable. <laughs> I just no, to, no, I just, it's, 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 that was the, that was the takeover valuation. Yeah. I mean, it was a massive company. Okay. Great. Um, so I, we're, we're going to yeah. unpack, I want to unpack in this if we can. Sure. Not just the detail of what happens, because sure. I think that's important, but I want to, sure. I want to understand the emotional roller coaster that you went through as well. Yeah. 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 No, it's a good point. So it's all about duty, but once I, um, got control. I mean, there was a, a, an interesting incident in December 87 when, you know, we got the shares and I'm going up the, in the elevator. We're about to change control from the old board to my board. And I remember being in an elevator with staff, other journalists, and I'm basically reserved, if not shy person. At 26, I felt so uncomfortable. I mean, they knew who I was the incoming proprietor, my face had been all over the media and newspapers, TV. And I said, nothing. Well, that spoke volumes that I just didn't know. I just like, I didn't want to be there. I was fulfilling somebody else's vision, another massive mistake. And in the time I was there, did I walk the floors and get to know journalists and all? No, like almost never. Cause I was so uncomfortable. I was just so not want to be there. So, you know, careful what you wish for. It's like, I'm, I'm fulfilling somebody else's dream, but once it's succeeded, uh, so to speak, it just, um, yeah, that was the emotions at the time. Like, yeah, we refinanced and did, you know, we had too much debt. We had also, you know, even with Drexel Burnham back then, lender of the last resort in the late eighties. But yeah, I just felt so uncomfortable. I just did not want to be there. That was emotionally what I was thinking. And what about, Let's go into that a little bit more. What was, what was driving that uncomfortable feeling? Well, you know, I was living John Fairfax's vision. Yeah. And frankly, my dad, you know, wasn't living his own vision. He was living his ancestor's vision. I mean, he was a good writer and all, but there are photographs of him in the country. He had like a estate outside of Sydney. And he's a lot happier when he's with, you know, in his estate with the cattle, I think, than, he, than when he's in the office. So it was a similar story. Um, so yeah, I just, I'm, I'm a reflective advisor. I'm not a, you know, Rupert Murdoch, who's obviously I know you're at news limit at one point. He's a very brilliant guy has been incredibly successful and I applaud his success, but I'm not this take charge, make a hundred decisions before breakfast, chief executive. That's just not me. I'm not cut out to ma- to be in charge of 4,000 people and $700 million company. I'm, I'm a reflective advisor. You realize that though. I mean, cause like, you know, you've gone and <laughs> you, you've taken, you've decided to go and do this out of duty. I get, I get all that. Yeah. And I think it's very well, honorable, but did you know yeah. going in at that point that this wasn't really what, you know, is like, let's call it your superpower, what you wanted to do. You know, I wasn't thinking that because it seemed an irrelevant question. Okay. It's just like asking Prince William, is this really what you want to do? Irrelevant question. What, what, about, what about the ability yeah. to do it? Did you have the confidence that, you know, let's say this was successful. 
did you think you would just kind of like work it out? Kind of my plan was, uh, I didn't realize at the time I really wasn't a manager or chief executive type. My plan was to, I don't know, work somewhere lower down in the company. You know, the, the family members who were involved could still keep their titles. I just wanted to change management. My thought was bringing a new chief executive who knew how to run companies. And to his credit, he increased operating profits 80%. So that would seem to indicate maybe the company could have been better managed, but the debt was so high, it kind of didn't matter. But that was, so my plan wasn't to run the company. It was to see it be run better and along the ideals of the founders. But I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't thinking that I was going to be in charge day to day. So I had a plan, but it wasn't about, gee, does this really fit what I want to do in life? Does this fit my skills? It's like a job needs to be done. There's a mission that needs to be done and it's fallen to me. And whether I'm good at it or want to do it, irrelevant. But that's what I'm not saying that's a good way to think, but that's what I was thinking. No, no, I, I, I think it's probably the right, again, I'm, you know, just from my listening to your story, sure. I think it's the right, it's probably the only way you could have thought considering, you know, everything else that was driving you. We're talking here, you know, as you said, from birth and expectation, Yeah, you have to do this. So like, to some extent, it's a little bit like, you know, you have to try even if you fail, right? Because- well, well, right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I don't, it was almost like proverbially, I don't care if I die trying, you know, dying in the proverbial sense of the word, it's my duty to do that. Maybe secretly I thought, gosh, if it doesn't work out, maybe I'll be free. I don't know. You'd have to get a psychologist to kind of, or hypnotize me or something to figure it out. But um, yeah, it, it was a strange thing. So, you know, trying to figure out, especially afterwards, well, who am I now? And now what do I do? I mean, it's, it, that was a weird, most kids grow up thinking, gee, what do I want to do in life? I didn't. That was an irrelevant question, right? Yeah. I like the Some way you kid. say that too, actually, an irrelevant <laughs> question, because you know, you, there's no point, there's no point putting any focus or intention into something that you can't really change, right? Like no. well, you could change it, but that's t- totally would misalign with your values. I'm sure. Well, it let down my dad. I mean, it wasn't like he gave me lectures, but it crushed him. I dearly loved him. And especially after he was thrown out, it's even more my duty to try to uphold his legacy or values or whatever was going on in my brain somewhere. <laughs> so before we go into, into kind of what happened and what you learned from it, um, just for context, I think for everyone listening in. So, so we were talking just before we press record. I mean, I was involved in the media game in Australia around this time, actually, certainly in the nineties, I was around and it was a pretty cutthroat place. <laughs> there was a number of people jostling <laughs> for positions. And then there was a whole heap of uh, acquisitions and consolidations and oh. all sorts of things that happened. So this, I mean, not only, the reason I say that for everyone listening in is not only was Warwick going into something like this, which was challenging its own right, the, the oh. macro environment of media at the time was unbelievable. Oh, and, you know, really for, for listeners, um, media was at its height of profitability. It's not doing too well now because of digital, but they used to call the classifieds and the Sydney Morning Herald and the age in Melbourne, they used to call it the rivers of gold. Yeah. yeah you know, employment, want ads, uh, real estate. Now it's very different, but back then it was, the cash flow was just massive. So yeah. Was I, there was a funny story when I used to work, um, at Murdoch magazines, they'd have a board meeting and you'd know that there was a board meeting that day because, um, there was like lobster bisque, uh, soup in the canteen <laughs> for all of our staff. Cause of course they'd serve lobster and literally, I'm not joking. This is a true story. And this is, this is like, 
it was just so funny. Like, and I, I was around all the way through to the transition to digital, like, you know, back into the two thousands, but just, just wanted to sort of make that point clear that not only were you doing something quite challenging in its own right, for every, all the reasons right. you described, you're also doing with all these other pressures. So well, let's Indeed. get into, let's go into, you know, what actually happens. So yeah. why, why was this not successful? You know, really, um, a couple of reasons. One is the rest of the family sold out. They understandably did not want to be in a privatized company controlled by a 26 year old. And I'm guessing a lot of your entrepreneurial listeners could understand that they probably wouldn't either. And I get that at the time I somehow missed that point. Um, hard <laughs> to understand. And I had just graduated from Harvard business school, like in May or June. It wasn't like it was 20 years ago. We're talking months. It's pretty obvious. And then October 87 stock market crash at our asset sales. So by the end of 87, we had an unsustainable level of debt that would have meant, you know, we had, I mean, you know, if it was poker, you would need it like four aces or something. I mean, it would have been extremely difficult to make it work. So when Australia got in a big recession in 1990, Newspapers are very cyclical. Um, so, you know, revenue went down. So we had to file for bankruptcy. So, really, as soon as I launched that takeover, it was pretty much doomed to fail as soon as I launched it in hindsight. I mean, it, it was just, especially when the family sold out and the stock market crashed. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's basically why it failed. It was really unwise. And just to give you an idea of how unwise, um, this is a lot of what you shouldn't do for listeners. Um, earlier in 87, I went to this at a blue chip, what we call in Australia merchant bankers, as they do in England, yeah. investment bankers in the US. And they said, well, I could hear what you're saying about corporate takeovers and the companies in play. But we would, what we suggest is if somebody else makes a bid, go to the family and then respond then, but don't do something now. Well, I didn't want to hear that. So I went to some advisors that had done some massive deals. For, I don't know, some of the big corporate takeover people in the late 80s who were doing all sorts of deals. And you know, people in Australia would know who those names were back then. And they were good at what they did, but it was like, oh, sure, for a fee, we'll, yeah, we'll help you. And, but, you know, I, I didn't listen to the good advice. You know, that I, was one I of the questions I had. Was like, that's, <laughs> I'm glad you're going to get into this because, like, as you, you know, before before you went there, I was going to say this is not a one man show, right? You know, you normally no. you surround yourself with some people who would have said, you know, this is a good idea, Warwick. <laughs> no, well, I, I and they said it was a bad idea, but that's not what I wanted to hear, so I didn't listen and went to the people that told me what I wanted to hear. So classic, what you shouldn't do, and. Um, but yeah, I, I, I went there. I did that. I did exactly what you shouldn't be doing. <laughs> so, <laughs> do, you, do you get a sense, and this is probably more of a deeper question, but do you get a sense that there's a bit of fate or serendipity in the outcome of this? I think there could be. It's a fascinating question because a bit like the royal family in some weird way, I felt like I was in a gilded cage. Mm -hmm. I couldn't leave because it would have betrayed my dad's legacy and what have you. But once it ended, it was unbelievably painful in the 90s were, were pretty challenging years. But long term, you know, my kids grew up in the US. Uh, my wife's American. I've lived here for a long time. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's funny. I've only just recently been thinking about this because we have our own podcast beyond the crucible and we interview a lot of people who've also had all sorts of challenges. And I've had people recently say, you know, what I like I, I interviewed an Australian uh, woman that was 
paralyzed at age 13 in a, you know, a pool accident in the backyard. And she looks back and says, what I went through is a gift. I'm thinking, how in the world could it be a gift? I've heard this before from people, blessing, gift, but I have to say until like a few weeks ago, I don't think I would have said this. I think in some ways it was a gift. It was a blessing because I wouldn't have been able to leave. I might've been, I don't know, a few hundred million wealthier and I'm still extremely comfortable, but there's extremely comfortable and there's really, really extremely comfortable. You know, <laughs> there's always another level, you know, well, so the, in a way it was a blessing, I guess. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, I think it's um, Tony Robbins says something along the lines of um, things don't happen, um, happen to you. They happen for you. Right. You know, exactly. And, but you don't realize that at the time. And, you know, even on the wealth side of things, like, you know, I, I'm doing it while I'm, I'm in Tampa while we're having this conversation. The reason I'm here, I'm doing a, a keynote speech actually. And it's about how do you, how do you sell your business for a life-changing number? And the first question I'm asking people is, yeah, it's quite funny. We're having this conversation. Um, what a great question. And, but the first question I asked them as part of that talk is what is your life-changing number? And I can tell you now it's not hundreds of millions. There's, there's a, there's a figure that most people have, uh -huh. which will give them whatever they need really, you know, I mean, I know people right. have different aspirations. So, so I'm sure that's why I asked the question about, is this, is this a gift or fate or whatever, because you know, clearly this isn't something you wanted to do, but you felt obliged to do. Right. I would almost, I don't know you that well, but I'd almost say sure. that the money wasn't really that relevant because you've already said it wasn't a main driver. No, no. I mean, I grew up with about as much money and status as it's possible to have. Obviously we had a lot of money, but the respect the Fairfax family had in the community, which is as much as and not everybody has both. We had a high respect in the community and a lot of wealth for most people. That's what they're looking for, right? Respect, status, money. So I had it all. But I was able to see in of itself, nothing wrong with it. It doesn't satisfy because, you know, it's like you reach that plateau. Great. I've got the house, the boat, you know, the house in the Hamptons or, you know, uh, Palm Beach, maybe in Sydney or, you know, south of France, wherever it is. And it's like, okay, is that all there is? And, you know, you can enjoy it. And obviously you would know very well from just what you talk about in of itself, it doesn't make you happy. No. Wealth never will. There is no number that's going to make you happy. If you do, if you use it to help others, now that's well, where the game changes. It's almost like you listen to my happens. talk. I finished the talk by saying it's about, you know, I said, well, I finished by saying you can only really make life-changing money if you're moving towards life-changing impact. That's, uh, that's brilliant. That's exact. That's perfect. That's because, exactly because right. I believe that's true because it doesn't, the bank account, unless you have fulfillment in some way, yeah. like whatever that is, which usually means making a bigger contribution to others, it doesn't matter about the bank account, but I like and the look, idea of you can have both. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm a person of faith and, you know, whether you are or not and whatever faith you have, I believe we're all designed as humans a certain way, which we cannot change. And we're not wired to be fulfilled in money in of itself. Maybe we, we can argue about, gee, you know, we in the designer made a mistake, whoever that is, but you know, we are what we are. And as humans, we are only fulfilled when we serve a bigger purpose, a higher cause or serve others. So I'm a great believer. And if you're designed a certain way, whether it's athletic or artistic, whatever it is, and with certain passions, just don't ignore the design because it's a, it's the way to misery. And you could talk to any faith leader, any psychologist, they pretty much will tell you the same. We're all wired a certain way. So, you know, why fight it? 
Peter. I like that. I've heard it expressed like that before. Actually, that's the first time I've heard it expressed that way. Um, What I want to ask then is, because you talk about significance and Mm -hmm. it's part of what you talk about in your book, which we'll get into as well. But, you know, what's the difference for you then around sort of the significance of status versus Mm -hmm. the significance of making a contribution? Because they're both about significance, but there's a different framing of them. Yeah. I mean, status can really be about yourself. It can be about ego, which for my value set, it's not particularly good. And I don't believe satisfies, but significance, which we define as a life on purpose, dedicated to serving others. There's really a higher purpose there. And I would argue from a business impact, if, even if you don't care about altruism, if you care about success, you look at most businesses that have long-term success, there's an aspect of altruism. You could look at Southwest airlines They were founded to uh, make travel affordable to bring families together. And that they're serious about that ethos. Um, So, you know, you could look at a number of examples like that. And so for me, if you want to be successful long-term, you want to tie your vision to something you think is going to make an impact in the world, links to your values, whatever that is, could be faith, philosophy. You'll also find you will get a... um, you know, a better kind of person, young people, especially they want meaning and purpose. You know, if ever there was a generation that, that wants that it's this, that you want the best and the brightest, you know, um, more and more young people have options. So if you want the best and the brightest, you better have meaning and purpose in your organization. I mean, I'm just talking, you know, pure practicalities, you know, in real life, it shouldn't come to that, but you know, it'll, it'll sustain you more in the hard times. So yeah, I'm a great believer that a life of significance, not only will it make you more fulfilled, you know, everything being equal in the long run, I think it will make you more successful. So the two are not at odds, success and significance. They can be in harmony, at least. I'm always being an idealist, despite what I've been through, and I'm still an idealist. So there you go. (laughs) Excellent. Good answer. And I I think let's, let's play around then with the lessons that you learned from this. And I also then want to introduce, I suppose, the concept that you talk about in the book of crucible moments. Um, mm-hmm. so let's, let's talk about the crucible moments that you had and went through, you know, through this, through this situation that we just talked about. Yeah. I mean, obviously the crucible uh, moment for me was losing a 150 year old $2 billion business. It wasn't the money, but letting my family down and an interesting wrinkle that, um, for me was because, you know, I became a person of faith at an evangelical Anglican church at Oxford. And so faith has always been important to me. So because the founder was also a person of faith in my misguided theology, I felt like, gosh, the founder was a person of faith. I'm a person of faith. It must be somehow some divine plan that I would be in charge of this company. And not sort of Jesus lives on the front pages, but more just how people are treated and, you know, how journalists, uh, you know, cover folks. So when that didn't, when the company went under in my misguided theology, I only felt like I let my parents down and my family and, you know, while 4,000 people still had jobs, there was a lot of instability. Like they knew the Fairfax family, who's going to be the new owners. Um, But I felt like the worst was I felt like God had a plan and I blew it. Mm. And obviously depending what faith you have, if God wanted that to happen, it would have happened, you know, God's sovereign will. But so that was just crushing for me. So really, yeah, that was the big crucible. It wasn't the money. It was just, I've let everybody down. I've failed, but just there was the sacred cause and I blew it. 
it was just, it was just soul crushing on many, many levels. <laughs> at what point, okay, just to jump forward a bit and we can go back as oh. well, but just to jump forward a bit, at what point in the future, and then when I'm over there in the future from when this happened, did you look at it more as a gift to use the word you said beforehand? Uh, you know, the process of coming back was drop of grace by drop of grace, brick by brick. I probably have only used the word gift and blessing recently, maybe last few weeks, last few months. I mean, it's, I would have said, uh, it was painful, but some good has come out of it. So there's been an evolution in my vocabulary. It's not gone from <laughs> Perhaps torture, I was being torture to gift, but, no, it's, but I it's, mean, you must have it's, gone it's on evolved. to create, you know, you've gone on and done other things, right? You've sure. gone on and created, you know, perhaps other businesses, other business opportunities, you've helped people. So, you know, these are all things that would not have happened. Right. So that's what I mean by that. The, yeah. The, the, so what, what have you, have you been clearer, clear now on what your purpose is post that? event. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think it starts with, as I say, don't ignore your divine design or wherever you feel like it comes from. If you're wide, you know, some people are entrepreneurs, some are not, but whatever your wiring is athletic, artistic, um, you know, maths, whatever it is, don't ignore that. The other linchpin for me is, you know, we all have values and beliefs and it could be in a religion. It could be philosophy. Don't ignore that. Because if you ignore your fundamental beliefs and values, any psychologist will tell you not healthy. So, you know, you know, uh, I mean, assuming you don't believe something you think is, is crazy, which by definition, if you think it's good, it's probably, it's your truth. It's good for you, you know, but understand your values and beliefs. And then, you know, sort of the next step is really uh, finding a calling that fits with that. So for me, you know, I had a stint at an aviation services company doing financial and business analysis come, you know, I used to be able to do spreadsheets well and analytical back in the day, but then kind of a huge, a big pivot point for me was I went to a woman that does mid-career executive coaching. Yeah. And she said, well, I could have a great profile for an executive coach. I said, really? And it turns out I I'm, I'm curious. I like asking questions. Most of the time, at least in a coaching situation, I'm non-judgmental. I try to be open. Everybody's, I really believe everybody has, frankly, the God-given right to pursue whatever path they want. Um, and so then from there, I began to feel like I had a leadership voice, which I, I would have thought in the 90s, I could lead my way out of a paper bag. A me, leader, come on, really? But, and then through that, I got on two nonprofit boards, uh, an elder at church and on my kids' um, school board. And I was like, gosh, this is a good fit for me because I'm, I'm an advisor. I ask tough questions. I encourage, but I don't care if the chief executive, executive director is a good friend of mine. I take it seriously. I'm going to ask tough questions. I don't believe in the country club mentality of boards. It's just not me. So little bit by little bit, I found things that I could do and do well. You know, and like my book is probably the last pivot point, if you will, um, I pastored my church asked me to give a seven, 10 minute talk uh, about what I went through some sermon illustration. I thought, well, I'm not Mr. Charismatic speaker, but sure. And people in America know nothing about Australia, you know, kangaroos, opera house. They've never heard of Fairfax media. I mean, why would you, you know? Um, and after I shared, people came up to me and yeah, I was sure what I went through and lessons learned weeks and months after people said, Warwick, that was so helpful. I'm thinking, how, how many other media, former media moguls are there in the congregation? Like none. How could my story help anybody? 
you know, some people who are cancer survivors or whatever, sadly, unfortunately, a lot of people can relate to that. But that was another pivot point, if you will, in which, gosh, if my story can help others, now that's worth writing the book. So what my book isn't, and this might disappoint some Australian listeners, it's not a tell-all book. I don't diss on other family members. I'm more about my own mistakes and lessons. So, you know, all of these were sort of many, some more than others, pivot points in which I began to see my purpose. So one overall lesson for me would be, you can't just go up some mountain and, you know, Mount Olympus and, you know, the Oracle gives you your vision and down you go. It was step by step by step, trust your gut, trust the process. And, you know, it's evolved to where it is now. But if you said to me in the nineties, you're going to write a book and maybe even speak and I would about, about what you went through. I'd have said, you're crazy. I'm not going to do that. I I don't want to think about it. I would have said, there's no way, but life can be funny. (laughs) There's the transformation or the transition or whatever we call it. Right. So I believe, you know, the right message at the right moment can change something for someone. Right. So you can't prejudge it. Right. So, you know, you might think that your story doesn't have any salience, but it's not really a story about Fairfax. It's not really a story about what happened. It's a story about what you did and how you've overcome it. That's the story. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I'm sure you find this is that in the business world, people don't like talking about failure. Like I went on a Harvard Business School alumni podcast like a year and a half ago or something. And the guy there said to somebody who was organizing this for me, you know, is, is almost sort of whispering, is, is Warwick willing to talk about failure? Because like CEOs, Harvard Business School folks, they don't talk about that because, you know, you just don't talk about failure. Well, it's like, well, that's the whole brand. That's the whole point is <laughs> talking about failure. So it's I don't know. More, it's, it's more real, right? People want real stories. Right. They, don't want, they don't want like, you know, because there's nothing worse than someone just talking about everything they've done successfully because you don't connect with that because it doesn't, well, and, you know, you said and, and the, we're all human, right? So right, we are built a certain way. And this is your world, but has there ever been an entrepreneur in the history of the world that hasn't failed at least once? To me, it's like, well, no. How could you be an entrepreneur and not fail? You know, there's a saying here, right? <laughs> which is, you know, and 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 good on all the people who get it right first time, right? You know, congratulations. Uh, but the average is about seven. The average is, if you look in, into the research of it, you know, most people wow. have seven. The ones who survive uh, are starting a business because remember, a lot of them still right. fail. Uh, yeah. There's about seven iterations, or let's call them pivots, in that business before yeah. they work out who they want to serve and what the product is and all those things. So those, if you want to look at it the right way, they are six or seven mini failures. Of course, it's not an ultimate failure because you don't give up. But, exactly. But there's still, exactly. still, still things that didn't go what <laughs> they were supposed right. to. And, and, and the smart entrepreneurs are ones that, that learn from their mistakes. Yeah. What did I do wrong? What went wrong? And how can I uh, figure it out better next time? The dumb ones say, well, it wasn't me. I did everything right. Everybody else was wrong. Like, well, really? <laughs> you've, got to look at, you've got to look at the success of entrepreneurship as a process of attrition, right? There or you go. a discipline, right? <laughs> so you, so that's why I think there is a connection to what you've done because yeah. you know, if anything, if it gives hope to people that there is a pathway after what can feel like a very dramatic loss, then that may give people the motivation, the there inspiration is. to do it. And I think for any entrepreneur out there, to me, the key is don't have your self-esteem and self-worth tied to your bank account or your successes. Because if you do that, that will probably guarantee a lot of failure and heartache. You, know, you want to, whether it's faith, just being human, 
you know, the opinion of your, you know, wife, husband, friends, wherever you anchor yourself, your self-esteem, got to have it, you know, outside of revenue targets, earnings per share, bank account, because that's easy to say, but so many, they fall, they, they fall into that pit, that trap, right? They're on the front cover of business week and man, you're amazing. You know, you're awesome. Says, you know, I kind of am, aren't I? Well, be careful because today's hero is tomorrow's, you know, failure. So easy to say, but I, I think that's, I think of that as a spiritual discipline. Keep your self-esteem and self-worth separate from your bank account and, you know, your earnings reports. So that's ironically a key to actually not just life success. I would say financial success. You'll make better decisions. Sounds kind of a, sounds weird, but. No, no, no. Yeah. There's, there's, there's different types of woo-woo on this podcast. Don't worry. <laughs> so last, last few questions as we wrap this up. What, what is the overriding message that you would like to give to the listeners here um, from probably the book that you think will help them? You know, I'd say from the book and indeed our podcast is that, you know, your worst, you know, you are not, your life is de not defined by your worst day. Maybe your worst day is today and you've lost a business, your marriage is broken up, you've had a health diagnosis that's uh, challenging. Don't be defined by your worst day or your worst mistake. Uh, just take it one step at a time. What's one positive step I can do? Get in touch with your faith, values, beliefs, whatever it is, and focus on others. It has been hugely helpful to me as I've focused on trying to help others that's been healing for myself. So, yeah. you know, life is not over on your worst day. There is hope. Um, so that's, you know, crucibles are tough, but it does not have to be the end of your story. That's probably the single biggest message of the book. Brilliant. Well, the book is called Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance. And it's coming out very shortly. We're recording this um, now here. What, end of, what is it? End of September? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hard to believe. In lockdown. <laughs> so uh, the book is coming out on the 19th of October. So a few weeks time. Um, it's been a pleasure, Warwick. I mean, well, actually, you know, what? I just like having a chat with another Australian. That's always good fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much, Nick. And uh, great to chat. And yeah, so much. I very much appreciate it. No worries. Well, our last question for you is uh, where can people reach out to you? Obviously, that we you yeah. know, the book is going to be, I take it's going to be on Amazon and all the good book places, but where can people exactly. reach out to you? Yeah. So my website is crucibleleadership.com. Um, on LinkedIn, it's Warwick Fairfax with a silent W in the middle. And uh, Facebook is Crucible Leadership. So those are all some good ways. Very good. Okay. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Great, great story, great insights. And and just your humility and honesty and, and vulnerability around this is much appreciated as much as your time is coming on the show. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Nick. Really appreciate it. And there you have it, another episode of Scale Up Your Business. Thank you very much for listening. And if you haven't yet, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help the show become even better. And while you're there, make sure you hit that subscribe button to help you on your scale up journey. Now, perhaps you're thinking of growing and scaling your business. Perhaps now is the time. If that's you, then please check out suyb.global. That's where we have all of our programs, including the Growth Accelerator Partnership, the Maximize Value Partnership, all of our services, and of course, coaching and mentoring. Once again, be grateful, be brave, have faith, and show up. Until next time.